Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, you don't have to turn there, but those three chapters hold the distinction of being the first words of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It's most popularly called the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus preached this Sermon on the Mountainside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And in this sermon, Jesus not only explains the way of salvation from several, several different angles, he explains how a true citizen of the kingdom of God is to live, Everything from the true internal faith and heart of the follower of God to marriage, to dealing with your neighbors, how to treat your enemies, to giving, to prayer, many, many other practical outworkings of a genuine faith in God through Christ. The Sermon on the Mount very much is how citizens of heaven are to live. That's the theme of that chapter, of that sermon rather. But this wasn't the first Sermon on the Mount. If we traveled back 1,500 years before Christ to the Israelites gathered together, we would see God himself preaching the first Sermon on the Mount, Mount Sinai. God has just given Israel their covenant commandments, the Ten Commandments, which form the covenant and the foundation of the superior king, that is Yahweh, to the vassal state Israel. And now, after giving this covenant... He's going to preach to them how the Ten Commandments are demonstrated in everyday life so that Israel can be a set-apart nation, a holy nation, a different nation, completely distinct from her neighbors to demonstrate the true and living God to the world. And so tonight we'll be in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 22, right after the Ten Commandments, and we'll go through the end of chapter 23. Now, as believers in Christ, I know that you want to please the Lord, and perhaps you hear phrases continually like obedience and devotion and holiness. Those are biblical words. They need to be said, and we say them often from this pulpit. But we also need, and we have a longing for the practical outworking of day-to-day ways to live out devotion and obedience and holiness And in that spirit, God didn't just give Israel the Ten Commandments and then expect them to work out the applications and work out the implications of those overarching principles. He gave them practical considerations, practical manifestations of those ideals. And his opening sermon in which he did this is identified as the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant answers many of the but what about when questions that the faithful Israelite might have had. Now, we said last time that the Ten Commandments were the general stipulations, the general requirements of the law of God. And by using the Ten Commandments alone, you could make your way to every other principle in the law. But what we call the Book of the Covenant gives a number of specific stipulations, more detailed than the general stipulations. Now, why do we call this the book of the covenant? Well, it's based on the expression found in Exodus 24, verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So the book of the covenant is really an initial giving of some details in the law of God. It is an expanded commentary on the Ten Commandments. Now, different scholars pick out different start and end points to the book of the covenant. But the heart of the book of the covenant is found in Exodus 21 through chapter 23, verse 19. Some would say the section before 
and after serve as the introduction and the conclusion to the book of the covenant. Others include it. It doesn't make any difference. For our purposes tonight, we're going to examine the larger version beginning in chapter 20, verse 22, and we'll end at the end of chapter 23 briefly. So this is the first Sermon on the Mount. And we could divide this sermon into a set of principles for living, all of which harken back to the Ten Commandments, reminding ourselves that we are not under the law of Moses, and yet what you're going to see, my hope and my argument tonight, is that by the time we're done, the principles for following God, regardless of which era, which dispensation you live in, the principles never change. The, the, the actual details of the law might change, but the principles are always the same because they're based, as we said last time, on God's character. The Ten Commandments and everything that follows are based on God's character, which never changes. And so we'll look at these principles here and try to derive some lessons from them. The first principle we'll call the principle of reverent worship. The principle of reverent worship. And we find this principle in chapter 20, verses 22 to the end of the chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth shall you make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So first here, God addresses idolatry. This is the ultimate offense against Yahweh. Any idol that is set up in God's presence, even one, by the way, meant to represent him, is Yahweh's enemy. It's his adversary. They were not to make images of God to make God appear more visible. One came to God by faith and faith alone. But then God addresses some specifics concerning worship. Until the tabernacle will be constructed and later on the temple, God gives specifics concerning altars. Now, why is the altar so important? Well, the altar becomes now the center of worship. It's the place of shed blood. It is the place of atonement. And so God gave them two options on how to construct any altar for sacrifice. The first and the best option was simply an earthen altar. Basically, that's a fancy way of saying a pile of dirt. There's a pile of dirt. In future years, this might also be the construction of outlying altars that might be used throughout the nation to offer sacrifice. Or the other option, an altar of uncut stones, basically a pile of big rocks. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this because these are the two verses I'm preaching the night of the the concert at Steadfast. Um, So I'm going to save some of that for then. But basically, before God would go to the elaborate worship structure of the tabernacle and then the temple with all the inlaid gold and all of the the fanciness that goes along with an ornate place of worship he's teaching them not to be distracted by worship structures by worship trappings to not focus more on the place of worship than on the object of worship now the normal practice of ancient peoples in every era egypt assyria babylon persia the, the Greeks, the Romans, their normal practice was to construct a shrine to a god with images of that god and to make the shrine as ornate and gilded as possible. 
But the worshipers of Yahweh don't come to him trying to create the reality of God by building structures and representations. They come by faith based on three lines of evidence. They come based on the evidence of creation, that God, Yahweh, is the creator God. They come based on the evidence of his revealed word, that he is a God who has spoken to them, who has given them a Bible. There is not a written word of Baal. There's not a written word of the Egyptian gods. And they come by faith based on the evidence of his previous works. As the Old Testament frequently says, what other God divided the seas for his people? And so based on creation, his revealed word, his previous works, we come by faith. And by the way, this also prepares the reader for the fact that the first earthly incarnation of God would not be in might and in power and ornate majesty, but the first earthly incarnation of God would be in the form of a child born in humble circumstances, coming to be the sacrifice for sin. So there was to be an awe for God and God alone, not the trappings of worship. Or to put it this way, God was after distraction-free worship, to be utterly focused only on Him. They were not to make an altar with steps. And what was the reason for that? Well, so they wouldn't expose the lower body of the priest or any other person offering the sacrifice. There was to be a dignity and a propriety to worship. There was to be a modesty in the presence of God for the sake of holiness, the sake of sanctity. He values modesty. We saw last time that when God called his people to meet with him, he ordered them to wash their clothes. And don't take this merely as some sort of symbol of coming to God in purity. He really wanted them clean. He really wanted them looking their best to appear before God. That, that was a mandate. And by the way, an altar high enough to need steps likely meant that there was an attempt at bigger is better. That, well, your altar only has six steps, but mine has 25 steps, and so it's better. That would make the altar and even the ascending priest more and more the focus. And so this is a, this is a command toward reverent worship. And I, I feel at times that our culture has decimated the idea of reverent worship. That, that we're trying so hard to be informal and casual with God that, uh, that now we don't remember what it's like to go before God in fear and in trembling. We struggle not to share our worship. We saw last time at Mount Sinai, God revealed himself in thunder and lightning and clouds and smoke and fire. Let me ask you a question. If you were worshiping God in the context of thunder, lightning, cloud, smoke, and fire, would you check your text messages? Would you fall asleep? Would you mildly listen? Would you sing half-heartedly? Would you have a condescending attitude? Would you hold bitterness in your heart in front of an all-knowing God? Would you complain that the sermon is too long or that the hymns have too many verses? No. You would free yourself from distraction. You would consecrate yourself. It's just a word that means to make yourself ready. You would enter worship with awe and reverence and fear and joy and expectation. Never forget from Revelation 2 and 3 that the Lord Jesus himself walks to and fro among his churches. And he is here. There would be reverence. How hard it is to leave the distractions of life behind us. But that's what true worship that pleases God entails. That's what it is. So how do we do this? If you were the head of your home, 
Husbands and fathers, you prepare your family to enter into worship with awe, with sobriety. Pray with your family on Saturday night. Prepare their hearts for the Lord's Day. Individual believers, we we prepare our own hearts. Uh, Yes, our worship is flawed until we get to heaven. We understand this. But undistracted, unfeathered worship is what God deserves, isn't it? He, He doesn't deserve half of our attention. He deserves all of our attention. It's what we owe him. I mean, when Isaiah found himself in the presence of God in Isaiah 6, he cried out, woe is me, I am lost. I I actually like older translations better that say, I am undone. It's a word that means I'm unhinged, I'm taken apart, I'm unraveled. I am undone. That's what reverent worship is. There's a sense in which we are not casual before God, we are undone before God. We see a second principle We'll call this one the principle of human worth. The principle of human worth is, is most of chapter 21. And so we'll just hit some high points here. Now, from our perspective, the section on human worth begins very oddly. It addresses slavery. And from our historical vantage point, we would expect the law of God, if we weren't looking, we would expect the law of God to immediately condemn any and all slavery. But the fact is, slavery was a pervasive cultural and economic reality. In fact, there are laws concerning slaves, not just in the law of Moses, but in other ancient Near Eastern laws, the the Code of Hammurabi and uh, the Hittite Code, other ancient law codes. Now, the slavery we think of from our vantage point historically is where people are kidnapped by slave traders, taken away to labor for the rest of their lives with no hope of freedom. But that type of slavery is strictly forbidden in Scripture. Amos 1, verse 6, God condemned the Philistine people for selling another people into slavery to the Edomites. And right here in this chapter, look at verse 16 of chapter 21. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. That type of slavery, that's human trafficking, that was a capital offense. In the ancient Near Eastern context, though, slavery or servanthood was a way to deal with problems. It dealt with problems such as severe indebtedness or destitute poverty. Through slavery, the extremely poor could have shelter, food, the protection of a greater household. And no one says that that was an easy life. But to be honest with you, the concept of an easy life is largely an invention since the industrial age. Um, You you didn't ever in that day hear somebody say, I'd like to have an easier life. You would be laughed out of town. The Hebrew word for slave used in these opening verses in chapter 21 has a has a range of meaning concerning social and economic roles. It can it can be all the way from very, very hard labor to uh, actually a very uh, high level position in a household. But in any case, the slave was to be treated as one who deserves human worth. In chapter 21, verse 2, if you purchased a fellow Hebrew to be your slave, he automatically went free after six years. This might be a way for that man to pay off a substantial debt. If he came into service single, he was to leave single. And if he came in married, he left with his wife. But if he's given a wife by his master and they have children and the man still wants to go free, he leaves alone. Now, why is that? In verse 4, Well, because essentially he's stealing a female slave already possessed by the master. Now, that doesn't mean that a kind master might just not let them go all all go anyway. But God provides another option. 
Chapter 21, verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost that represents the whole household. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So there was a kind option. Now the female slave had a different situation. Verse 7 said that after a man, if a man sold his daughter into slavery, she would not go free after six years. Now at first we say, oh, here we go again. The Bible is against women. It seems harsh, but we have to put ourselves in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Now, first of all, a young woman going free was not going to have any prospects and most likely what was going to happen is she would either die or end up in prostitution. And second, the family selling the girl, they didn't do so without emotion. They didn't do this um, because they wanted to. It was a means for them to climb out of poverty. And more importantly, it was a means to give her a chance at a better life. The, the prohibition against a female slave being automatically freed, that wasn't against her. That was for her. It was making sure that the master of a female slave was always responsible to care for her. That she would always have a provider, always have shelter, always have food. Now, the female slave might be, in verses 8 through 11, designated as the wife of the master or the wife of the son. When the family gave up a daughter in in that hard, terrible situation, when they gave up a daughter, that was their hope. Perhaps the master will marry her. Perhaps the son will marry her. In that case, she suddenly goes to the rights of a wife. And if the master decides to take another wife, the first one who started off as a slave girl still is to be treated with the dignity of a wife up to and including the obligation that he had to give her children. And children were so important. This was a form of financial protection for the future. And if not, he had to let her go free. In other words, the female slave might or might not move up in the world, but she was always going to have a home, always going to have food and protection from a powerful family. And so this was a, this was a, a kindness in many ways. In addition, unlike most ancient Near Eastern cultures, the slave was afforded legal protection from terrible masters. Verse 20 of chapter 21, the master who killed the slave instantly was to be punished. Verse 21, if the slave was beaten but didn't die for several days, that was considered a property loss, not murder. The loss of the slave was considered punishment enough. And you have to remember, in the ancient world, corporal punishment for slaves, for children, and for students, by the way, was pretty much universal. You didn't know your lessons. You got a beating in the corner. That's just the way things worked. In fact, it was considered foolish not to establish your authority. Proverbs twenty nine nineteen: By mere words, a servant is not disciplined, for though he understands, he will not respond. But the master overall couldn't just be violent and harsh. He wasn't allowed to do that. Verses 26 and 27 dictated that if a master seriously injured a slave, the slave was to go free immediately, that there was justice. Now, after dealing with slavery, God deals with capital offenses, and he does this in in short fashion. Verse 12, the murderer shall be put to death. Verse 14, even if the murderer runs to the altar of God as a sanctuary, he's to be ripped away from the altar of God and still executed. There is no sanctuary for a murderer. In verse 13, if death happened accidentally, then God promised that he would appoint cities of refuge 
where the man guilty of at least manslaughter could run to avoid family vengeance. In fact, God claims sovereignty over these situations that, quote, God let him fall into his hand. In other words, personal vendettas are not allowed. Personal vengeance isn't permitted. And so God would establish sanctuary cities. And, of course, verse 15, anyone who strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Verse 17, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. What was the death penalty for? The death penalty was meant to protect the sanctity of human life. Remember, a society without a death penalty says you can take a life and still get to have yours. That's lack of justice in its rawest form. According to this law, you you know what you do with all abortionists? You execute them. You know what would happen? No more abortions. No more death. And so God is very clear about this. There's 19 ways in the law of God that you could lose your life justly. If you say you can take a life and still get to have yours, now justice is gone. Well, then God addresses matters of personal injury. Again, he's taking the law of the the Ten Commandments and working it out in detail. And many of these laws, they don't cover every situation, but they're, they're precedents. They cover, you know, this law is similar to this situation, so it gives us a precedent. Chapter 21, verse 22, if a pregnant woman is assaulted, even by accident, and it causes her to deliver the child, payment is to be made. Now, the big question is, it says, so that her children come out alive or dead. There's ambiguity here. Why? It gives judges latitude in determining the level of punishment. Verses 23 through 25 gives gives us the classic eye for an eye law. Verse 23 But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now you might say, oh, that that sounds a little bit harsh. Well, that's better than most ancient Near Eastern cultures where if you hurt somebody a little, if they have more power than you, they can just kill you legally. So this establishes a guideline, a principle for judges that the punishment fits the crime. And it's absolutely not a grounds for personal retaliation. These are guidelines for, verse 22, the judges. And then, in verses 28 through 32, an out-of-control animal which causes death shall be put down. And if the animal has been known to cause injury in the past, the owner is to be put to death. These verses list other levels of restitution depending on the, on the injury. So all of these laws here, these are, are meant to show human worth. To us, the protection of human rights it seems almost instinctive because of, uh, of our culture and so forth. But why is that instinctive to us? It's because we still enjoy the influence of the law of God, which stood up for human worth in many ways for the very first time. And that worth is based on the image of God principle. I want to make this note here. We should be very quick to distinguish between the inherent worth of mankind as made in the image of God and the inherent sin nature of mankind. Those are two different issues. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And yet at the same time, James 3.9 says that we're not to revile. It means to verbally curse or abuse someone because they're made in the likeness or the image of God. 
the death penalty is based on the severity of one life taking another human life. And by the way, um, the death penalty is not, it is not a human being taking another human being's life. The death penalty is God taking a life by means of a human agent. And there's a big difference. Romans 13 tells us that. But the worth of humanity is based in the worth of God and the fact that we're his creations and we reflect his glory. We can reflect his glory. That is one option. That's why those who refuse to reflect his glory, those who refuse to worship and imitate their creator, they've now outlived their purpose. Romans 3.12, they have become worthless. A human being who will not reflect the glory of God by submitting to him and having his sins forgiven now has no purpose for being alive. There's no purpose in his life except to glorify God through the wrath of God. And so in a very real sense, what is evangelism? Evangelism is our encouragement to the lost to live out their ultimate purpose, to reflect and glorify God in holiness, which obviously can only be accomplished through the cleansing of sin through Christ himself. And so the principle of human worth drives us to tell those around us Live up to your potential, not your potential to have a great career or to make money or to make a name for yourself, but your potential in Christ to reflect accurately the image of God. Human worth. There's a third principle we see in the law. We'll call this the principle of property respect. The principle of property respect. The laws presented in this section aren't exhaustive. They're illustrations. They present examples that establish precedents for dealing with similar situations. Verses 33 and 34, and I know you were dying to hear this tonight, it, it deals with times sometimes someone digs a pit. I know this will change your life. This could be a cistern, it could be a well, or even a trap for wild animals that might be menacing his flocks. But if he doesn't take measures to prevent someone else's animal falling into it, he has to pay the price of that animal. Similarly, in verses 35 and 36, if one man's animal injures or kills another, restitution is expected. Why is this? Well, your animals were your wealth. They, they were, they were your, your riches. So to not restore that property would be considered stealing. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 4, now we deal with cases of theft of an animal. And again, like stealing money, the rules were pretty straightforward and, and very just. If someone stole an animal and it was either killed or sold, the thief had to repay the animal five times over in some cases, four times other in in others. If the animal was recovered, the thief still had to pay double. And if the thief couldn't pay, he was to be sold into slavery to pay his debt. And by the way, there were no prisons and a much better system was slavery. Why? Because he was being productive. He wasn't costing a dime. And by the way, It allowed that man who was the thief to still retain his human dignity to work for a time and work his way back into being trusted by his community. Our prison system does exactly the opposite. It allowed them to still feel valued as a human being and yet still make actual restitution for his theft. By the way, if the thief was breaking in at night and was killed by the property owner, he had it coming. And if it's daytime, then the property owner is guilty of murder. The simple reason was that a daytime home defense would be considered an act of vengeance, whereas a nighttime raid meant that the owner had no way of knowing how much danger he and his family uh, were in. 
Chapter 22, 5 and 6, these verses deal with being a good neighbor. After a harvest, a farmer would clean up his field, and he would do this one of several ways. He might let animals eat in that field, or he might burn the field. But if his animals get loose or fire breaks out in another field, he had to pay reasonable restitution. He had to watch out for his neighbor. The next several verses, chapter 22, 7 through 15, deals with, still in property here, property disputes. In ancient Israel, there's no banks. There's no commercial services such as storage. So you might, if you're going on a journey or you're nervous about something, you might give your treasured possessions to a neighbor to keep safe. Or animals might even be loaned or a harvest stored in a neighbor's barn. These laws dealt with what to do when those arrangements went sour. It was determined whether some kind of loss was accidental or due to negligence or theft of some kind. And included in the principle of property respect, chapter 22, verses 16 and 17, deal with what to do when a man seduced a young unmarried woman, a young girl. It's not that she's property, but when the family, when she was to marry, the family would have received a substantial bride price. Why would the family be paid for a young woman? Well, because they were giving up a working member of a household in a culture and in an economy that depended on a large household to make your, your family work. But if the young woman is seduced by a man before she's married, in all likelihood, no one's going to pay a bride price for her. She becomes then, as the old saying is, damaged goods and not able to um, be married in the pr- traditional way. So here the Lord says to the man who seduced her, congratulations, you're getting married and you're paying the bride price. And oh, by the way, the wedding only happens if dad says yes. If dad says no, then the seducing man doesn't get the girl and he still has to pay the bride price. You know what that did? That said premarital sex is not worth the risk. And it kept the nation pure. The principle of property respect is so clear here. It's fundamental to human existence. It's fundamental to property, uh, peaceful relations with one another. And it has several clear applications for us. Don't borrow things if you can't take care of them. Don't borrow things if you can't take care of them. Don't let your children play with things or on things that don't belong to them. That's, a, that's a, an example of respect. This is an extremely practical form of loving one another and resolving conflict in a sinful world as peacefully as possible while still maintaining relationships. But I wanted you to notice something here. While property is important, theft or damage to property never carried the death penalty because human life was not on par with things. When the slave Onesimus stole from Philemon and subsequently got saved, Paul urged Philemon not to put the value of his property above a man's soul. He was still to be cared for. He was still to be loved. And so it gives us a model with what to do with the thief, what to do with the criminal. You treat him as a human being and try to help him get back into society as a working member of the community. There's a fourth principle we see here, the principle of community purity. The principle of community purity. Suddenly, we see that the Israelite society is to have a zero-tolerance policy in three different realms. Verses 18, 19, and 20 of chapter 22. The one practicing sorcery by demonic power. The one practicing bestiality, terrible sexual acts with animals. 
and the one sacrificing to a false god. They were all to be executed, not imprisoned, not reformed. There's no chance for restitution. They were to be disposed of. Frankly, even some pagan cultures prohibited the practicing of of sorcery. In ancient Hittite laws, sorcery was a severe offense. Now, of course, their means of dealing with it was just as pagan as the sorcery itself. But even godless cultures recognized that the occult was bad for society as a whole. And in the name of a loving, kind community, the helpless also were then to be treated with kindness. This is community purity still. The non-Israelite coming to Israel was to be treated with, with fairness and kindness. Verse 21 of chapter 22. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Here's the reason. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, yes, ultimately Israel was enslaved in Egypt. But do you remember why they came to Egypt in the first place? Because they were starving. They were starving and Egypt took them in. Now, it's a little more difficult to apply this to millions of people streaming over our own borders. The one principle is clear, regardless of what your particular opinion is on immigration. Once they're here, they're to be treated with kindness and love and tenderness and humanity. The Israelites were to take care of widows and orphans and not mistreat them, which was totally unique in the ancient Near East. And God puts a serious threat in place as the defender of the helpless. Chapter 22, verse 23. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. In the name of community purity, verses 25 through 27 are designed to protect the financially desperate. If you loan someone money, you were not to exact interest from them. Now, this is hard for us to grasp because our economic system is totally different than ancient Israel's. But in Israel, loans were made almost exclusively in case of emergency. And so the principle here was to not take advantage of someone in a, in a tender place in life, to not exploit his need and not give him a chance to recover. There was to be a grace and a dignity given to the one who is in trouble You might loan him money and he gives you his cloak, his coat as security, but you were to give it back to him so that he wouldn't be cold at night. There was to be a kindness and a helpfulness. This was to be a glorious society in which if you're in trouble, your community comes to your aid. Not the government, by the way, the community. Now, the principle of community purity, this is exactly how the church ought to function. This is how we function. The unrepentant evildoer should be excused from the fellowship. Why? For the protection of the body. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13. I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Someone who says, I am a Christian. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In the same spirit, the least among us are to be cared for. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows, orphans, and widows in their affliction. 
those with more are not to see them as better than those with less. James 2, 5 and 6, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Listen, if you're a person of means, you're to be kind, you're to be careful. Even in your thoughts, you're not to look down on others. That helps us keep a purified community of Christ in which all are equally bent in worship at the foot of the cross of Christ. Here's a fifth principle. We'll call this one the principle of honored authority. The principle of honored authority. Look with me at chapter 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. So the idea of divine authority and human authority being respected, they're they're intermingled here. They're bound up together. And there's three ways the principle of honoring authority is manifested. You honor with your speech. You honor with your speech. In verse 28, the faithful Israelite was not to revile God or curse a human ruler of God's people. Revile and curse, these are two similar Hebrew words, very similar in meaning. It speaks of making someone small with your words, of demeaning them and insulting them. Not only do you honor with speech, you honor with what is due. You honor with what is due. Verses 29 and 30 reminded the Israelites of what is due to God. But in context, it's reminding them that part of what is due to God is to give what is due to man as well. And then the third principle here, you honor with propriety. You honor with propriety. Verse 31, you shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Now, this isn't so much a dietary law. It's not saying don't eat roadkill. Uh, That's basically what this is here. But it's the general principle of just don't do disgusting things. Don't do gross things that dishonor the Lord and soil your life. Have propriety, uh, particularly with authority. The honoring of authority is foundational to a true follower of God. There is no such thing as an unsubmissive Christian, ultimately. Ultimately, Christians are defined by the fact that we submit to authority. Verse 29, God says, You shall not delay to offer what is due to him. The attitude that we have toward authority is that there is a full deference at a heart level. Delaying giving what is due shows a reluctant heart and a surface level external obedience only. That on, on two occasions in, in the ministry that I've enjoyed, um, a person has come to me and given me all the reasons why I should be so very, very thankful that they would condescend to put money in the offering. And on two occasions I have said, you are no longer allowed to give to this ministry because that's not the type of money we want given with that attitude. And so you may ask permission at some later point to begin giving again. We will give you your checks back. You're not allowed to give. Because that's, that's not how we're to give what is due. You shall not delay. A submitted heart is a clear indication of a true reality of faith. Because if you believe God is sovereign over all, 
And as sovereign, he has placed human authority in place. Then we submit from a willing heart. It always breaks my heart to hear of professing Christians who are disrespectful toward law enforcement, disrespectful toward others in authority. That's not right. That's not okay. Here's the sixth principle. We'll call this one the principle of truthful justice. The principle of truthful justice. Now, these laws in chapter 23, 1 through 9, really they could be boiled down into a series of commands, all related to truthful justice. Verse 1, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. We could boil that down to don't slander. Don't slander. Verse 2, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. We could boil that down to don't conspire. Don't conspire. Verse 3. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. You ready for this one? That says don't be a liberal. What does it mean? Don't be a bleeding heart who tries to equalize society. Don't be a liberal. Verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. That also says, don't be partial to the rich. And so we don't equalize society the other way either. Verses 4 and 5, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. In other words, a disagreement doesn't mean you treat someone with hatred. I've seen people in our church who have difficulty speaking civilly to one another because they're in a disagreement. This says that's not okay. That at a human level, that person is still a human being. And then in verses 7 and 8, those verses basically say, don't be part of injustice and fraud. And again in verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Be kind to the one in difficult circumstances. Don't look down on him. It might be you. In the minor prophets, in which God promises both punishment to unfaithful Israel and restoration to Israel in the future, the idea of justice is brought up over a dozen times as a major issue God is dealing with in the later centuries of Israel. God proclaims in Micah 3, verse 9, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. In Micah chapter 6, God reminds wayward southern kingdom of Judah that he rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. And then he plays the part of an Israelite asking the question, What do I do to please God? And so playing the part of an Israelite, he says, What if I came with thousands of sacrifices and even my firstborn child? Would that prove my genuine faith in Micah 6, 6 and 7? And the implied answer is no. Here's what's required to demonstrate true faith. Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do what? Justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The principle of truthful justice. One more principle. The principle of heavenly provision. The principle of heavenly provision. God wants his people to trust him. And so every seven years they were to not plant their crops. 
Can you imagine getting a command from God every seven years, you can't go to work for a year? Later in Leviticus 25, God would give more specific instructions about this. But look at one of the reasons. Chapter 23, verse 11. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. This is demonstrating God's kindness and provision. Whatever will grow wildly and naturally, leave it alone and let others come and take of it. In the same way, he reminds them of the Sabbath. Verse 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien, that is the sojourner, may be refreshed. And in this agricultural context, this is so important, he gives a command to them. Verse 13, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Now, what does that have to do with not, not uh, cultivating a field? Well, the Canaanite gods were most often gods associated with fertility and weather and crops. And so they were not to be even mentioned. Why? Because Yahweh is their provider, not these other gods. They're not even to be on their lips. And then in verses 14 through 17, three times a year at least, all the men in the nation were to appear before God for three different feasts. Uh, Families most often participated, but they weren't required to do so. This was an early version of the series of seven major festivals described in more detail later in the law. But these three in particular, in the context here of sowing and reaping and trusting the Lord by not planting every seven years and not working every seventh day, these three are important. You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is Passover happened at the same time, but that was a private celebration. But the, the overall co- uh, culture national celebration was Unleavened Bread. You had the Feast of Harvest. That was equivalent to Pentecost. And you had the Feast of Ingathering. All three of those feasts took place at key agricultural times of the year. The beginning of the spring harvest, the end of the wheat harvest, and the end of the entire agricultural year just before the winter rains came. All three of them were Thanksgiving feasts to the Lord. Thanksgiving, three times a year. Our diets couldn't take it. We couldn't do it. And so they practiced trusting the Lord. Do you know what he's telling them by saying, come and gather together? He's saying, leave your fields, leave your work. You know what he's saying by telling them to leave their fields fallow every seven years? Leave it alone. Trust me. You know what he's saying by saying don't work every seventh day? Trust me. And by the way, don't ever mention the false gods who would say that we are your provision. And they celebrated God's provision three times a year. And when these celebrations were happening, along with the sacrifices and meals that went with them, God gave additional instructions. Chapter 23, verse 18 You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything unleavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. Leaven or yeast represents in the Bible and here in this context corruption, sin. Blood represents redemption. These two were not to coexist. Corruption and redemption don't go together. They cannot. Now the fat of a sacrifice would turn rancid if it was left overnight. It was not appropriate to the holiness 
that the sacrifice was meant to communicate. They were to bring the best, not the leftovers, not the worst. They were to bring the best of their crops. And the point of all of those commands, don't dishonor God with inferior offerings. Don't dishonor Him by keeping the best for yourself. And in that spirit, in verse 19, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. No one has nailed down an exact reason for this. There are a couple of good possibilities. One very very likely possibility is that this was part of a Canaanite ritual and they weren't to participate in it. But we do know this. We do know that this was the common practice of nomadic peoples. In fact, it's still witnessed in modern times today among Bedouins of taking a goat, a young goat, and boiling it in its mother's own milk. And it may be that this is prohibited because this is contrary to nature and it's inherently inhumane, so to speak, to cook a young goat in that which was meant to nourish it. That there's a, there's a line that's been crossed there. This is very similar to the prohibition in Deuteronomy chapter 12 against consuming blood. It was considered inherently heinous and forbidden. By the way, that was also practiced by other ancient Near Eastern peoples. And so God is saying, you're going to be different. Don't consume the life. It just showed the basic decency toward even the animals which were eaten. At some level, there's a sense of gratitude to God for his provision and not being cruel, which flies in the face of the character of a true believer. And so there's to be a thankfulness here. The principle of heavenly provision is so clear here in this text and it's something that's important for us. As believers in Christ, we're to be thankful for all we receive. Sylvia and I were talking last night about, I wonder what would happen if electricity suddenly disappeared. Basically, we'd just all die. That's a provision for us that we can't do without anymore. We are to be thankful for all that we receive. It's not magic when you flip a light switch and the light comes on. It's not magic. Somebody gave that to you. God provided that. We're not to credit false gods for our provision. We're not to name the name of other gods, such as the God of my job, my wealth, my talent, my success, my work ethic. These are all given by God at whatever level he's chosen to give. So the expectations that God had of his people, they're practical, they're daily, they're earthy. And while we aren't under the law of Moses judicially, since now we're under the new covenant, when Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, these principles all apply regardless of covenant, regardless of time. And the rest of chapter 23 basically says, obey and be blessed, disobey and pay the price. It's a tying the ribbon on this thing. So this is really the first Sermon on the Mount. But there was another one, the more famous Sermon on the Mount, delivered by the Lord Jesus himself on the qualities of a kingdom citizen, how we live our daily lives as true followers of God in Christ. You know your Bibles. If you were a betting person, would you bet that you'd find the same principles in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? You would be correct. The principle of reverent worship. 
Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus said that the kingdom is entered through the narrow gate. The gate is the gospel of Christ believed on by the completely humiliated and humbled repentant sinner. Jesus prohibited daring to appear before God while harboring sin in your heart. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, that if your brother has something against you, you make amends before daring to appear to worship. Principle of reverent worship. There's the principle of human worth. Matthew 5, 43 through 45, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That even someone who hates Christ and despises our faith is worthy of being treated as a human being. We don't look down on them. We don't think that they are less than us. How about the principle of property respect? Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus said that if you even think desirous thoughts toward a woman who's not your wife, you've committed adultery in the courts of heaven. You want a good way to look at respecting others and their property or domain? Matthew seven twelve. so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What do we call that? That's the golden rule. But he also balanced that with telling us to be careful not to idolize our property. He also instructed us in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And he goes on to say, for where your treasure is, there your what? Your heart is also. How about the principle of community purity? Matthew 6, verse 3, Jesus assumes that true believers always give to those in need. He doesn't even teach it. He just assumes that's what you're going to do. Matthew 5, 42, he says, Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, by the way, Jesus didn't say give everything he wants. He said just to give. In the book of the covenant, part of community purity, purity was identifying and judging the wicked unbeliever, the sorcerer, the sexual pervert, the idol worshiper. Jesus said that he will ultimately take care of that for God's people. The religious frauds who are inwardly disgusting will be told by Jesus, Matthew seven twenty three, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How about the principle of honored authority? Matthew 6, verse 9, Jesus instructed us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. And we start from that position of holiness and deference. Matthew five forty one, human authority. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. What does this mean? A, a Roman soldier in Jesus' day could legally tell you to carry something for him for a mile. Jesus said not only to submit to him, but do more than he asked. Submit to human authority. The principle of truthful justice. You might be the victim of injustice for the gospel's sake, but God will bring about the truth. God will bring about justice. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just recently, I've spoken to a few of you who have been mistreated for your stand for the gospel. Truth will prevail. Justice will be done. And how about the principle of heavenly provision? Well, this is, this is the easy one. 
Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and let your, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What was the purpose of Israel as given in Exodus 19, 4 through 6? They were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be a light to the world, demonstrating a different and set apart set of lives filled with justice and kindness and trust in the Lord so that God might be glorified. What is the purpose of the church as given by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So you can take your pick. You can take Sermon on the Mount, Mount Sinai version, Sermon on the Mount, Sea of Galilee version. Both express the heart of God that His people are to be different. We're to live in a way that pleases Him, reflects His glory, and shows God to a watching world. Absolutely, absolutely relevant to us today. Is it not? Let's pray. Our Father, thank You for this Word and how wise You are. And while we are not under this particular covenant, the words ring true for us because your character has never changed. And they simply give us a different version of the law of Christ that then is presented to us in the New Testament. And, and so we're in awe, Lord, to get to be part of a people who live under your commands that teach us how to live in a way that's separate, that's different, how dare we would ever say that we are not under any sort of law, that we have absolute other freedom. And that's not right. You are sovereign. You are our king. And a king is to be obeyed. And in that obedience, we receive such great blessing. We receive the natural, God-given consequences of obedience. Lord, I pray for each person here that they would see these principles for what they are as, as a means to express our love and our worship toward you? Might we be those who live very practically our faith, live it out day by day, and not have a separation between what we believe and what we do, that those would be in concert together. And Lord, I pray for one or two who might be listening who are not certain where they stand with Christ. I pray that this would be the day that they come to faith and that the Holy Spirit would regenerate them, make them a new creation in Christ, that they too might fall under this glorious, glorious provision of the law, us for the law of Christ, to show our love for you, the great freedom we have. We are freed now to obey you. We are freed from our sinful habits, which used to constrict us and used to dominate us, we are freed to obey. We are freed to act more and more like Christ. We are freed to fellowship with you, our Lord and our God. And we give you thanks through and in the name of Christ. Amen.